trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Perhaps you've heard the rumors that this is a place, a gathering spot for those who like to revel in wrong think. Well, I'm here to tell you those rumors are absolutely true. But when you consider the alternative, I would much rather revel in wrong think than grovel in groupthink. Huh? Huh? I had to make a bumper sticker out of it, except I don't believe in bumper sticker slogans. Nevertheless, I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I'm here to encourage you to think as clearly and deeply, as independently as you possibly can. There's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, flat-out spin and deception going on out there. I like to follow the credo of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which was, let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. The simple step of a courageous individual is to not take part in the lie. So if that resonates with you, if that strikes the right chord in your soul, pull up a chair. Come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. And by the way, note that there are sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis, including HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Well, I want to start with a topic that I think all of us are <clears throat> becoming intimately familiar with likely against our will, and that is uh, inflation. Now, you might find a few outliers at this point who can still try to pretend, oh, it ain't no thing, you know. Inflation is just a minor inconvenience. But reality is not only stubborn, it's, it's proving otherwise. I've got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. The inflation disaster is collateral damage from lockdowns. So if you want to make sense of why is inflation such a factor right now, this is a really great place to start. Jeffrey Tucker says the outrageous prices at the grocery store and gas stations, the highest ever recorded, and increasing at rates too fast to calculate with precision, are yet more collateral damage from the initial lockdowns two years ago. Now he says the story unfolds over two years, but the line of causality is direct. And apparently it's going to get much worse. In fact, he says, I wonder if at some point, No one will remember how all this began. Maybe everyone's already forgotten. So he says, I asked a friend, do you think people will understand the relationship between the March 2020 lockdowns and the wild price increases two years later? The answer came, no way. Now he says, that surprises me. But I also understand. There has been so much flim-flam coming from the media and government spokespeople for so long, so many attempts to demonize and scapegoat, And in addition, for many people, the past 24 months have just seemed like one big blur when everything they thought about the world has been blasted to pieces. It's extremely disorienting. And after a while, one can get used to the chaos and just accept it without attempting to account for it. The lines of causality become too blurry. Well, the latest mess, and he says this doesn't even account for the shocking talk of nuclear war that's now in the air, profoundly affects all states in the U.S., not just the blue ones that stayed closed much longer than the red ones. Jeffrey Tucker says red states have felt normal, but now they too must deal with incredible price increases in everything, plus strange and random goods shortages on the shelves. 
No one is spared when we all use the same currency and inhabit the same global economic environment. Now, from here, he shifts to cash and mattresses. And I hope you're ready to, to face some hard facts because there, there's, there's some truth here that's not sugarcoated, and, and you need to know this. The cash you hold is losing value. Financial markets are volatile, but even when rising, portfolios can't keep up. Even the best-managed funds are scrambling for returns. Savings seem ever less like savings. Even with cost-of-living increases in salaries and wages, the purchasing power is shrinking day by day. The promises of transitory inflation turned out to be credible as the promises to control the virus. He says persistently high inflation becomes a tragedy for the poor and working classes who are daily astonished at the new terrain of high prices for everything that makes life good. But it's especially awful for the savers. They're all being punished for frugality and exercising good personal stewardship over their resources. So it wasn't a surprise to any economist that personal savings soared during lockdowns. This is not only due to few opportunities to spend money. He says that was the least of it. When a crisis hits, risk aversion dominates confidence. The pace at which money changes hands collapses. The cash stays in the mattress. This is due to fear. And it's entirely reasonable. This boost in savings during a crisis normally prepares the way for recovery because once it ends, deferred consumption in the form of savings becomes the basis of investment in capital that then becomes the basis of the rebuilding. This is a natural economic phenomenon. You can call it the silver lining of any crisis. There's recovery, and it's built on the real economic behaviors inspired by the crisis itself. And you can see this happening when you look at the data from 2020 in personal savings. It ballooned from 7% of income to 33% practically overnight. In fact, we've never seen anything like this before. Which, it's also a measure of just how awful things became so quickly. Now, of course, it was brief, but valuable. Household savings soared 120%. Corporate and business savings also show risk aversion as they socked away a clean $600 billion in so many months. Now, counterfactual. Let's say that uh, two weeks to flatten the curve had been real. All restrictions were removed in a fortnight. Everything reopened. Congress had done nothing. Everyone wondered why we had behaved so egregiously and we got to work dealing with the pandemic like intelligent adults. Might we have recovered quickly? Jeffrey Tucker says surely so, even if it would be the trauma of a generation. Instead, however, Congress went absolutely nuts spending money that they did not have. In fact, he says, I've previously explained the events. This is from a previous article of his. It was March 27th, 2020. There was a $2.2 trillion spending bill on the table. Congress was going to approve it without even showing up to the Capitol. It was an appalling sight. These lockdowns had already permissioned every privileged person who could work on a laptop to stay home while the working class had to keep up the old routine. Congress was going to throw trillions around the country now without even showing up to vote. That's when Congressman Thomas Massey, Republican from Kentucky, hatched a brilliant idea. He would insist that Congress obey its own quorum rules. He pressed the point and thereby required at least half of everyone to come back, traveling to Washington, D.C., precisely when they were most scared to leave their homes. Now, it made sense. If you're going to shower the country with that much money, the least one could do is adhere to the rules of the House and show up for a vote. Trump, however, was a huge supporter of the bill and the lockdowns and therefore furious at Massey. 
He tweeted that Representative Massey, one of the more brilliant and humble members of Congress, was a third-rate grandstander. He just wants the publicity, he said, and called for party leaders to throw Massey out of the Republican Party. Jeffrey Tucker wrote, of course, the bill sailed through with only Massey in opposition. That bill ended up being a disaster. In fact, it could arguably be blamed for why so many states kept their economies closed for as long as they did. The money itself, rather than being used for compensation for lockdowns, became itself a moral hazard to continue the lockdowns for as long as possible. Indeed, the more money that Congress allocated to lockdown relief, the longer the lockdowns went on. Now, Jeffrey Tucker includes some charts to show you what happened. He says, if you want to see what happened from the spending side, this will show you how unprecedented this is. When Congress spends like this, it generates government-secured debt that seeks a market. Now, eventually, that $2.2 trillion would become $6 trillion. The Federal Reserve was there to provide exactly what Congress needed, and hence its balance sheet, still in the process of normalizing from its previous bout of buying, shifted dramatically. The balance sheet at the Fed exploded in its debt holdings, all of which are purchased with metaphorically printed money. So when governments and central banks behave in an unbearably stupid way, it's worth asking whether there might be a point to the madness. And Jeffrey Tucker says, that's how I feel when I look at M2 data from 2020 through 2021. He says M1 might be a better way to explain it, but the Fed changed the definition in May 2020, making the chart inconsistent. This money printing peaked at a 26% rate of increase, or look at the raw money data. Again, we have to use M2. The Fed inspired the addition of some $6 trillion to the supply of money, nearly a dollar-for-dollar match of what the politicians were promising. Now, all appearances of science aside, it was nothing but the crudest deployment of a classic tale of monetary devaluation, print instead of tax. So in raw dollar terms, we have seen a 42% increase in the money supply in a mere 24 months. It's possible that some people at the Fed figured they could get away with this because they loosened dramatically in 2008 with no substantial effects on prices despite all predictions. But they became too arrogant and too sure that the net effect of all quantitative easing or creation of money is positive or at least neutral. Looks like they were wrong, doesn't it? Jeffrey Tucker says, with lockdowns, the Fed and Congress cooperated to paper over the economic devastation so it would show up less in the final numbers and also to keep the rabble calm during the storm. People at the time warned of the possibility of an inflationary mess, but others said such concerns should be dismissed completely on the grounds that some people said that in 2008, too. It's definitely getting a different result this time. We'll come back to Jeffrey Tucker's article. You'll find it linked in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a moment here and thank one of my sponsors, that being the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah, at 619 South Bluff Street. Why would you want to go to the Heather Turner team when it comes to uh, getting a mortgage from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage? I'll tell you why. Because Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. 
She not only knows exactly what she's doing, she's really, really good at what she's doing. She knows what the borrower needs, she knows what the lender needs, and she can help make it happen when time is of the essence. Like just, you know, for instance, if you were in a very competitive real estate market. If you'd like to contact Heather and let her put her expertise to work for you, here's how you do it. Call 435-703-4522. Click on the email link I provide in my sponsor section of my show notes. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I want to go back to this article here from Jeffrey Tucker about how the inflation disaster is collateral damage from lockdowns. And I know when the lockdown started, people were worrying, oh, how are we going to make ends meet? It probably felt pretty good when the government stepped up and said, hey, 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 we're going to start dropping checks into your bank account. Jeffrey Tucker says, you know, it seemed like a gift, but it was quickly taken away. And it was not only the savings that were wiped out in the subsequent inflation, but also the purchasing power of the stimulus checks themselves. So those checks may have worked for a while until their effective value was essentially stolen by stealth. Even now, Americans hold some $2.7 trillion in savings in excess of what they held pre-pandemic. He says the economic planners in D.C. have essentially put a target on that saved cash. Even if you would believe the reported inflation numbers at the retail level, level rather, $1 saved last year is only worth $0.92 cents today and will be, will be worth $0.84 cents by year's end. So where did that purchasing power flow? To Washington, D.C., which is ballooned in scope and size. Now, this brings us to the hunt for value. The realization of inflationary pillaging tends to dawn slowly and then all at once. In the coming months and years, we're going to see a dramatic change in the psychology of saving. People will see that it's not worth it. Better to consume now, live in the moment, don't plan for the future. Get rid of the paper as fast as possible before it loses ever more value. We've heard of this before, right? I mean, are you hearing some historical echoes there? Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this is how inflationary expectations work. It adds fuel to the fire of devaluation. So we aren't yet seeing much evidence of this yet, but it could emerge at any time. This has cultural impact on whole societies, rewarding short-term consumption over long-term planning. It punishes saving and rewards profligacy. Now, to be sure, not all the price increases are accounted for with monetary policy. There are supply chain breakages, shipping snarls, and now cruel sanctions against Russia that we didn't see even at the height of the Cold War. Decoupling the causative elements here is an impossible task, and monetary theorists will argue for years about the Fed's culpability. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, theory's beautiful, but fitting it to reality does not reveal certainty about what's causing what. But even if you think the Fed is not wholly to blame that breakages and market chaos generally account for the lion's share, government policies still bear responsibility. And it all traces to the fateful March 2020 decision to turn off economic activity as if this would be as easy as shutting off a light switch. Just turn it back on when the virus is gone. Well, it turned out that it wasn't quite that easy. Meanwhile, he says there seems to be no stopping this beast that's eating through savings and currencies and also the reputations of central banks fecklessly pretending to stop it. The wild swings are being exacerbated by tremendous uncertainty in supply chains and oil resources in particular. The war response is also causing absolute havoc, not only in oil, but in all commodity markets. The pandemic response unleashed several seasons of policy recklessness, destruction, and nihilism. 
almost as, as if none of the lessons of the past applied, whether in public health or economics. He says, if we ever emerge from this chaos, historians will surely look back in amazement that so many terrible decisions could have taken place in so many parts of the world and in such quick succession. Would that we could recapture the theories of French economist J.B. Say, who wrote, Let no government imagine that to strip them of the power of defrauding their subjects is to deprive them of a valuable privilege. A system of swindling can never be long-lived and must infallibly, in the end, produce much more loss than profit. Jeffrey Tucker says that's a good description of the forces that were unleashed in the name of public health. It generated enormous loss in every area of life. And we're still paying the price and will be for years to come. Even in the fog of inflation and war, he says, let us not forget the origin of it all. It is caused by catastrophic decision-making at the top. Isn't that something? I'm going to shift gears here for a moment because there's there's another topic I want to touch on here. And uh, do you remember the days of Freedom Prize from back when France refused to participate in the unnecessary invasion of Iraq? Well, guess what? Boycotts are back in fashion. J. Mark Powell has some historical perspective from the British tea to Russian vodka, a history of boycotts. He says, from government bans to, cu- to customers pouring it in gutters by the gallons, Americans are saying, yet, to Russian vodka, expressing their anger over the Kremlin's unprovoked in- invasion of Ukraine. I'm sorry, he probably should have put unprovoked in, the, uh, in quotation marks there. Politicians, he says, have known since the Republic's founding that folks love taking their frustrations out at the ballot box. And in a capitalist economy like ours, Americans aren't shy about doing it with their pocketbooks either. In fact, American independence actually grew out of one such economic protest. Britain shelled out big bucks, or pounds as it were, on the French-Indian War from 1754 to 1763. To recoup that money, Parliament imposed the Stamp Act in 1765. Everything from playing cards to magazines to newspapers required the hated tax stamp. And get this, it had to be paid in actual British pounds, not with the colonial's own cheaper paper money. Taxes being every bit as popular then as they are now, the colonials weren't too merry about sending their income back to merry old England. It led to the famous rallying cry, taxation without representation. It also produced an economic boycott. Colonists suddenly found that they could do without new playing cards, magazines, and newspapers. Well, that hurt business's bottom line back in Britain, and King George III put the kibosh on the hated tax a year later. Now, when the U.S. entered World War I in 1917, many patriotic people boycotted eating Germany's signature dish, sauerkraut. Those who couldn't go without the tart treat justified it by rebranding it Liberty Cabbage for the duration. In more recent times... Russia's best-known band of brews, Stolichnia Vodka, was also the target of a widespread boycott. On September 1, 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007 veered off course and was shot down over Soviet airspace. All 269 people on board, including Georgia Congressman Larry McDonald, were killed. That prompted an an immediate and intense pushback from furious American consumers. At its height, 15 state liquor agencies banned Stoli sales. But the bottles were back on the store shelves in less than a year. And in some places, the boycott boomeranged. In Iowa, for example, sales shot up from an average of 34 cases sold before the crisis to 68 afterward. Now, the current crackdown on Russian booze is part of a proud tradition. And with Americans miffed, they see cash registers as a voting booth and their dollars as their ballot. So here's a parting point that's worth noting. 
Like so many words in our vocabulary, sandwich, cardigan, braille, even graham crackers, boycott comes from someone's name. After retiring from the British Army, Captain Charles Boycott worked as a landlord in Ireland. Times were hard on the Emerald Isle in late 19th century, and tenants demanded their rent be lowered. Well, it came down a little, but not enough to help the impoverished Irishman. Boycott was ordered to evict people in 1880. Well, that didn't go over so well in the close-knit Irish community. His employees stopped working for him. Store owners wouldn't take his money. Even his postal carrier refused to deliver his mail. In short, they boycotted boycott. Ha! Which was how the proper noun became a verb. A verb American vodka vendors are hearing quite often these days. Nothing like a little historical perspective, is there? Stick around. We've got some more great stuff to drop on you, including a great essay from Barry Brownstein. We'll get to that just the other side of these commercial messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to sing the praises of HSLAmmo.com. Very happy to have them as a sponsor of this program. And, uh, you know, ammo is uh, it's a nice store of value. When we were talking about, you know, the ravages of inflation, you know, earlier on this hour. Well, turning things into commodities isn't such a bad idea if you want to hang on to some of that value. And uh, ammo, believe it or not, is one of those things that holds value very, very well. Now, I'm not uh, giving you financial advice so much as pointing out that uh, you have a ready resource available to you through HSLAmmo.com. I would say not just for the sake of, uh, you know, stocking away some value for a future day, but also for going out and having some fun, making a joyous noise for freedom. Click on the link that I provide in my sponsor links at the and uh, you can take it from there. So I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, the power of ideas is remarkable. I mean, what's the old saying? You know, there is nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Now, I believe that to be true, but there's a corollary to this, and that is uh, if, if there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come, then it stands to reason that the power of terrible ideas would be considerable as well. I've got an article here from uh, Rael Jean Isaac, which... Uh, talks a little bit about uh, some of the worst ideas that we are facing right now. Here the author says, Many have criticized the current enthusiasm for judging the past by the standards of the present and condemning those past leaders who didn't meet them. But he says, Few have noted how many currently dominant beliefs are totally disconnected from reality and have a profoundly destructive impact. Now, as an aside, I would say, People who listen to this show on a regular basis, though, probably are not among those who are surprised, you know, to, to, uh, to, to hear this. You, you've already noticed this. Rael Jean Isaac says, I propose to discuss two of them here. Ideas about the nature of mental illness, which have produced what Charles Krauthammer called an army of broken souls foraging and freezing in the streets. And the conviction that our planet is in existential danger from human-induced climate change. Now, he says the latter has led to a wholly unwarranted, hugely expensive crusade to eliminate fossil fuels. And the chief effect has been to strengthen the leverage of those countries, many of them enemies of the West, that continue to produce these fuels, 
which remain essential to the functioning of industrial societies. In the 1960s, a mad idea was born, the notion that there is no such thing as mental illness. Now, incredibly, it would become the foundation for public policy. The idea sprang independently from two maverick psychiatrists at opposite ideological poles. On the right, U.S. psychiatrist Thomas Sass, an unsparing libertarian, and on the left, the British Ronald Lang. Sass disposed of mental illness by verbal sleight of hand. Mental illnesses do not exist. Indeed, they cannot exist because the mind is not a bodily part or bodily organ. Now, never mind that the brain can be a bodily organ that malfunctions in mental illness. Psychiatry is a form of quackery because it offers cures for which there are no diseases. Lang treated schizophrenia, the most disabling mental illness, as a voyage of discovery. We find that a person who is labeled insane is often the sanest member of his or her family. Now, Lang was uh, culturally more influential, a guru of the new left, much enamored of his variations on the theme that schizophrenia was a rational way of healing our own appalling state of alienation called normality. But it was Saz who reshaped care, or more accurately, failure to care for the mentally ill. The judges who ruled in the major cases that resulted in the massive shutdown of mental hospitals and the inability to treat unwilling, eventually even willing patients, except in extreme circumstances had read neither Saz nor Lang, but they did read the law journal articles written by members of the emerging mental health bar, whose ideas came straight from Saz. Bruce Ennis, the bar's pioneer, has described how he taught himself about mental illness. Asked rather in 1968 as a young new hire by the New York Civil Liberties Union to start a project on the rights of the mentally handicapped. Anna says, I went to a library and I looked under law and psychiatry and found some books by a man named Thomas Saz. So I decided it was an important enough subject to devote a lot of my time and life to, so I did. Saz would write the preface to Ennis's 1972 book, Prisoners of Psychiatry. Soon entire issues of law journals were devoted to demolishing all psychiatric claims. What was labeled mental illness was simply an alternative lifestyle. Treatments, including antipsychotic drugs, were all side effects. No positive effects. Indeed, they were a form of torture. We know that judges who ruled in the major deinstitutionalization and right-to-refuse-treatment cases read these articles because they quoted extensively from them in their decisions. Now, while the need for treatment had traditionally been a basis for treatment, only a quasi-criminal disinformation, or dangerousness rather, standard survived. Intervention was legitimate only when someone was in imminent danger to himself or others. And this was defined so narrowly that the individual had to be on the verge of suicide or murder. And even then, in growing numbers of states, he was presumed competent to refuse treatment, undercutting the very purpose of involuntary commitment. Now, the tremendously subversive implications of these ideas only became apparent in the 1980s. American society was helpless to deal with an enormous social problem destroying the quality of life in its cities, and it still is. Now, for the record, I think Thomas Saz was brilliant. I think uh, he pointed out that psychiatry joined forces with the state to make people who were inconvenient disappear into asylums. So I would say don't rule him out as well. He's the reason why we're not treating the mentally ill. He just made a very clear distinction between, you know, the the uh, science, if you will, of psychology versus the science of neurology. One of them is an actual physical science. The other one, I don't know what you would call it. You know, neurology studies the physical structures of the brain, psychiatry and psychology. 
They're studying intangibles. Not to say that you can't learn something, but let's not confuse them for being the same thing. All right, back to the article. The notion that our planet is in imminent danger of becoming uninhabitable because of man-made emissions of carbon dioxide is more recent as far as terrible ideas go, dating to the late 1980s. In the age of global warming, Rupert Darwall also traces its roots to two men, Swedish scientist Svant Arrhenius, who in 1896 wrote a paper predicting that a doubling of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would increase temperatures by 5 to 6 degrees centigrade. And also Guy Callender, who, uh, who over 40 years later attributed a global temperature rise from 1934 to 1938 to a rise in CO2. Now, unlike Saz or Lang, neither have been celebrated in global warming circles because, as Darwall writes, both men thought rising CO2 levels were a happy development, contributing to plant growth and staving off a rapid return to an ice age and deadly glaciers. Now, for all the believers that constantly invoke the science, the science, Darwall makes the crucial point that today's global warming theory is not science at all. He reminds us that the sine qua non of the scientific proposition or the reason for existence, as Karl Popper points out, is that it can be disproven. But the theory of dangerous man-made global warming is immune from falsification with any real-world departure from expectations. In other words, a decade of flat temperatures prior to 2009, despite a steady rise in CO2 emissions, explained by some untenable ad hoc hypothesis. Darwall observes that global warming theory is scientific in the same sense as Marx's theory of history or Freud's psychoanalysis and Alfred Adler's individual psychology. In the case of all three, as Popper points out, advocates find only confirming evidence and that they find everywhere they look. In the case of global warming, believers point to every instance of extreme weather as confirming evidence. That does seem true, or at least what I see you know, come through in news reports. Such theories, Popper said, were pre-scientific, depending for acceptance upon the appeal to authority. This is glaringly apparent in global warming theory, which firmly rests, we are told, on almost universal consensus of scientists. So let's break this down. There's more to this article, but while there is a plethora of other prevalent, terrible ideas currently making their way to the top, such as changing the purpose of corporations for promoting the interests of shareholders to those of society, at least as defined by woke activists, an especially corrosive new idea is now in danger of emerging triumphant. And this is the notion that any differences in outcome between groups can only be explained by racism. For proponents, if eliminating differences requires overturning our educational or our professional institutions, banishing tests or considerations of merit or competence, well, so be it. China, which this month explicitly, implicitly rather, expressed its opinion of the climate change apocalypse by vowing to expand domestic coal mining by 300 million tons a year and indicated it has no indication or no intention of uh, changing the nature of math so that everyone can master it. They're awaiting the results. There's a whole bunch of great, uh, I'm great, terrible ideas that are outlined in this piece, but I think you ought to take a look at it. And again, I don't even necessarily agree with uh, uh, Rael Jean Isaac on uh, the, the concept that uh, Thomas Sass, you know, is responsible for turning psychiatry on its head. I think actually, uh, if you read some of Sass's stuff yourself, you'll see this was a guy who was much more committed to freedom than building the supremacy of his particular line of work by melding it with government. 
Stick around. We've got a great message from Barry Brownstein coming up in the next segment. Something to lift your spirits and give you a bit of encouragement. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm just going to hazard a guess. You probably don't tune in to get advice, right? Because I'm not an advice columnist. Good heavens. I'm wearing slip-on shoes, okay? If that tells you anything about the kind of advice I could give, I am too lazy to want to lace my shoes up in the morning. So I've, I've got some really nice uh, Red Wing slip-ons here that are very comfortable, very sensible, but uh, also very easy to put on and require, you know, a lot less effort. So, yeah, I'm not the guy for advice, but if you're looking for some good advice, I happen to know some people who know some people who are pretty dialed in to, uh, to solid principles. And here's some of the best advice you're going to hear this week. This is from Barry Brownstein, and he revisits a column that he published back in 2018 about why people fail at love. And there's a subtitle here. Are we asking the wrong questions about love? He says, recently a reader found new value in an essay I wrote in 2018 for intellectual takeout. I offer it today as a shift in focus from the sorrows of the world. Barry Brownstein says, seeking advice about the qualities he should look for in a mate, an unmarried man in his 30s, posted posted at the online sports forum of my alma mater. He uh, invited comments on his list of top attributes, looks, camaraderie, cooking ability, love of the alma mater, this man attends every game, and patience. He thought his problem was finding a woman with the right qualities to love him. Now, his post generated a lengthy thread. Many men at the forum had strong opinions on the most desirable traits in a mate. Now, Barry Brownstein says most of us would say love is important, indeed, Social psychologist Eric Fromm, in his classic book, The Art of Loving, writes that many are starved for love. They watch endless numbers of films about happy and unhappy love stories. They listen to hundreds of trashy songs about love. Are we asking the wrong questions about marriage and love? Well, Barry says, Fromm observes most people see the problem of love primarily as that of being loved rather than that of loving or of one's capacity to love. Now, as the thread at the forum demonstrated, many search for love with a shopping list of attributes. Yet, Fromm observes, hardly anyone thinks there is anything that needs to be learned about love. Now, love cannot enter where one's beliefs make love unwelcome. Could a fundamental shift in orientation from a focus on being loved to a focus on being loving make love more welcome in our life? Fromm dismantles myths about love and provides a mindset adjustment for anyone willing to consider his ideas. Okay, so it starts with realizing love is an art, just as living is an art. Barry Brownstein says people say he or she is lucky in love, but he says that belief is nonsense, according to Fromm. You can learn the art of loving, and Fromm points out essential steps, as in the mastery of any art, the capacity to be loving requires mastery of the theory and mastery of the practice. Now, crucially, Fromm instructs there is a third factor necessary to becoming a master in any art. The mastery of the art must be a matter of ultimate concern. There must be nothing else in the world more important than the art. Now, given that there are so many failed marriages, 
Fromm would say few people value the art of loving. Why? Well, he writes, in spite of the deep-seated craving for love, almost everything else is considered to be more important than love. Success, prestige, money, power, and almost all of our energy is used for the learning of how to achieve these aims, and almost none to learn the art of loving. Fromm's words jolt us like a bucket of ice water, says Barry Brownstein. There's nothing intrinsic to modern life that causes marriages to fail. Instead, our personal hierarchy of values gives too low a priority to being loving. Each of us has a responsibility to learn to grow our capacity to be loving. But you got to understand, infatuation is just the beginning. Fromm observes, there is hardly any activity, any enterprise which is started with such tremendous hopes and expectations and yet which fails so regularly as love. Mere infatuation won't last. Fromm writes, when, writes, the two persons become well acquainted, their intimacy loses more and more its miraculous character until their antagonism, their disappointments, their mutual boredom, kill whatever is left of the initial excitement. So what comes after infatuation wears off? For partners who are not willing to become more loving, often the relationship dissolves. Then they're on to another relationship where they aim to get a better deal from a person who they believe will love them more. Well, believing love is merely a mutually favorable exchange, they go right back to looking for the right object to love or be loved by. An endless cycle repeats, proving Fromm's essential point. Love is not merely a pleasant sensation, but instead requires knowledge and effort. So we get confused, Fromm writes, with the initial experience of falling in love and the permanent state of being in love. Love, Fromm describes, is an active striving for the growth and happiness of the loved person rooted in one's capacity, one's own capacity to love. Being in love is a skill to master. It's not a transitory feeling. Being in love depends on increasing our own capacity to love. Now, those interested in increasing their capacity to be loving should consider the character traits identified with successful, loving relationships. Fromm instructs, satisfaction in individual love cannot be attained without the capacity to love one's neighbor without true humility, courage, faith, and discipline. In a culture in which these qualities are rare, the attainment of the capacity to love must remain a rare achievement. How many of us have considered the possibility that building character enhances our capacity to be loving loving, and significantly increases the odds of finding a partner with whom to build a good life? In fact, Barry Brownstein asks, how many of us place character first? Most people, he writes, Fromm finds, think being lovable is essentially a mixture between being popular and having sex appeal. Well, there's nothing wrong with brightening our smile or becoming more successful. But to be loving, the development of character comes first. So for those trying to find a mate or build a healthy marriage, Fromm has provided a North Star to help us stay on course. I don't know who needs to hear this. Like I say, I'm, I am far from the person you want to take advice, you know, for the love Lauren from, but this rings very true to me. If you find that, uh, that love is lacking in your life, it's not a matter of you're just trying not hard. You're not trying hard enough to be lovable. It may be that uh, you're missing opportunities to be more loving to the people around you. 
Look, it's, I know it's going to sound like I'm speaking in platitudes, but, but experience has shown me there's, there is truth to the idea that light attracts light. And I think in that same sense, a person who goes throughout their life actively seeking to love the people around them. Look, whether, whether you know them or not, you can show an act of love to other people. And it generates, uh, you know, more net love in the world than was there a few minutes earlier. Holding the door for somebody is a great way to do this. Courtesy in traffic is a great way to do this. I only mention that one because that's probably the place where I feel the least amount of love is when I'm in traffic and trying to negotiate and someone is inconsiderate or something. And I'm just, ah! you know, somebody asked one time, who is your enemy? And a friend on Facebook responded, every other driver on the road. And I went, ooh, ouch. <laughs> I recognize something there about myself I, did, I didn't like. So let me give you an example. And I, I've shared this before, but, but if you haven't tried it, I would encourage you, just give this a try sometime. Next time you go to the convenience store or even the grocery store, next time you're, you're being rung up for a purchase, you don't notice that there's always candy bars and there's impulse items there, but pick a candy bar out or just look at the candy bars and whoever's ringing you up, look at the candy and say, oh man, these all look so good. I can't decide. And then ask them, what's your favorite? And whatever they tell you, well, I like Snickers. Okay, grab one of those, pay for it. And then as you go to leave, hand it to that person and say, hey, this one's for you. Have a great day. That's how you can show love. I know you might think, well, they're going to think I'm some kind of a weirdo. Trust me, because I've been on the other side of that cash register. They will not think you are a weirdo. Or if they think you're weird, they're going to think you're weird in the best possible way. They'll be like, that's the coolest, most positive person I've met today. And you will have measurably brightened that person's life through a simple act that uh, neither they expected nor you were being coerced into doing for them. It wasn't like you're, you're treating them like some kind of a pet project. Oh, you look broken. I'm going to fix you. It's just that simple being loving towards other people that will make an impact on their life. I promise you, from that moment forward, their day is going to go better, regardless of what they happen to have been dealing with. Don't believe me? That's okay. But for those who do, I would encourage you, put it to the test. And see if you don't walk just a few inches off the ground as you're going out the door. Because for some reason, it really it feels good to help lift somebody else. You can't do it without yourself being lifted in the process. I don't know how it works. I'm not a physicist. But it does work. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is not about telling you what to think. It's not about expecting you to gather around my chair like a 1950s television dad as I sit there with my pipe in hand and my perfectly brill-creamed hair dispensing fatherly advice to my children at my knee. No. 
I'm here to encourage you, though, to think as clearly and independently as you possibly can about the world around us. And more importantly, I'm going to borrow something. I saw this on Facebook yesterday and shared this. I'm going to encourage you to approach life as if the biggest impact that you can make in the world now and always is to remain an individual, to avoid falling into groupthink, to be very wary of labels used to box you in, and to have confidence in your own thinking. Those three things could have prevented a lot of what we're currently seeing around us that's very, very challenging. So with that in mind, let's proceed forward. I want to thank my sponsors, including GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. Well, I thought we could start with, uh, you know, how you feel about competition is something that will shed very serious insight onto what your worldview is. Is it more about the individual? Is it more about the collective? Got a great article here from Ron Ross about how those who appreciate competition tend to be the people who appreciate freedom as well, whereas those who hate it tend to be against freedom and more for compulsion or collectivism. He says competition makes numerous areas of our lives more efficient, from the economy to education to the search for truth. In the economy, competition is the single most powerful force for progress and innovation. A good way to entice customers away from your rivals is to make a superior product. Build a better mousetrap and the world will be the path to your door. Nobel Prize winning economist George Stigler called competition the patron saint of the consumer. Competition pushes producers to provide consumers the most for their money. A combination of keeping prices as low as possible and keeping quality as high as possible. It pushes them to be efficient. Producers who fail to be efficient don't survive. Competition means survival of the efficient. Now, the degree of competition determines the crucial balance of power between consumers and producers. Vigorous competition puts power in the hands of consumers. Its absence puts producers in control. So a good way to appreciate the value of competition is to take a look at its polar opposite, monopoly. Monopoly means consumers have only one producer to choose from. One choice amounts to no choice. Under communism, all producers are monopolists. The state has a monopoly on every aspect of life. And because it lacks competition, a communist economy is extremely inefficient and always becomes dysfunctional. Cuba and Venezuela, for example, can barely feed their populations. Now, no economy is automatically or organically efficient. Efficiency requires incentives, and those don't exist under communism. I mean, just as an aside here, my friend Oliver DeMille pointed out to me one time, you know, there, there's a reason why the, the buildings in socialist countries are so butt ugly. It's because there's, there's no incentive for someone to create something beautiful. All of it is owned by the state. Even your very labor is owned by the state. So if your job is to build those buildings or design those buildings, they just need to be utilitarian. Yes, comrade, it will hold up. Yes, it's a, it is a perfect gray concrete building suitable for housing the workers, suitable for housing proletariats. Yeah. Whereas you give somebody a, an incentive to create something beautiful, they will. When they can see the product of, of their uh, competitiveness to, to 
create something better than they did before. It's not even so much that they're trying to outdo, you know, Howard Rourke. Sorry, that's, there's an Ayn Rand reference for anybody who, who's ever read, you know, The Fountainhead. So think about this. A free market voluntary exchange economy provides an abundance of incentives. Profit motive is one example. The more efficiently the owners of a private business operate, the more profit they'll take home at the end of the year. It's similar to the way a fantail keeps a windmill pointed into the wind. In an otherwise efficient economy like ours, public schools are dysfunctional. They're as dysfunctional as they would be under communism. And that's because the public school establishment has been so effective in blocking competition in education. See, public schools fit most of the characteristics of monopolies. Teachers and their unions have power, while students and their parents have almost none. Now, this is going to vary from district to district, but you get the point. If more competition were introduced, the power imbalance would be reversed. The increased interest in school choice, vouchers, and charter schools, for example, are reasons for optimism. Competition among ideas is what makes free speech and robust debate so vital. Debate is, in fact, competition in search of the truth. The left's cancel culture is about destroying competition, establishing a monopoly of ideas. Leftists think they've already discovered the truth, so there's no reason to continue the search. Now, conservatives love a society that rewards the efficiency of competition. Leftists hate it. They love communism instead. Now, I'm going to have to say I I, I mildly disagree with, with the choice of labels that Ron Ross uses in this, but but I think his point can still be taken. My aversion to labels is simply that they become too handy of a crutch and, and they become a form of word magic where if I just say, well, you're just a Democrat or you're just a, a, you know, a liberal or a progressive. That's lazy on my part. Because uh, there may be some aspects of your you may be advocating for a position that is traditionally progressive. But by sticking a label on you, I'm essentially saying this is what you are. And if I don't agree with that, then I don't have to listen to you. You shortchange yourself in the long run if you don't at least consider what others are trying to, to, to put out there. And that, that doesn't mean you have to sit there and argue with everybody. It just means you've got to be willing to, to confront ideas that don't coincide with or reinforce or confirm or validate your own. Competition is a good thing. And I say that as someone who works in a very competitive, you know, kind of pursuit. There are a lot of different voices out there. There are a lot of people out there who have immense talent with words and with ideas and with persuasion and, and the power to, to sway people's opinions and to, to win their attention and adoration. And sometimes it's tempting to, to, to judge yourself by the numbers. I've been there before. I've been there obsessing over, oh, what, are, what are the ratings going to say? What, what do the numbers tell us? But I have a little different definition of competition. And, and this works for me. Maybe it won't work for you. I don't know. We're individuals, okay? I don't, I don't tend to think in collective terms. So what works for me, I hope would work for others. But ultimately, you are the one who gets to make that decision. I'm less concerned with generating the biggest audience, the most, you know, revenues in my pocket or the most recognition, you know, the most Marconi awards and so forth for what I'm doing. I don't really care about that. I don't even care how many people may be listening at any given moment. 
It's not because I don't care about my listeners. It's because I know that someone somewhere is looking for some straight-up truth. They don't want to participate in the lie. They just want to know that there is there is truth out there, and maybe they're not sure where to find it. So to the best of my ability, I am going to seek out and then speak that truth without regards for, you know, but is this going to be palatable for everybody? I already know that for some people it's just simply not. Some people don't need or want what I have to offer. And yeah, there was a time where I would have taken that kind of personal, like, hey, you know, why why are you a hater? Why why don't you like this? But that that's okay. I've come to the point where I would much rather have impact than have fame and fortune. Now you can say, well, that's just you copping out, Brian. You're just <laughs> you're you're raising the white flag of surrender. I don't think so. Because taking this approach has required me to take a much tougher, much more upward path than I would have otherwise. I mean, if I if I really just wanted to generate, you know, uh, fame and fortune and, you know, to, to build the biggest audience possible, I'd be playing to people's prejudices. I would be trying to give people reasons to be angry. I'd give them demons to wrestle with. And I've seen from firsthand experience that is a way to build a large and loyal audience. You want to sensationalize things? Oh, yeah, you'll get people to listen. But I don't just want to get people to listen. What I want to do is I want to reach those people who not only are seeking out truth, but who are so consumed with the idea that truth matters that they will seek it out even when it's not what they necessarily want to hear. But they take it over comforting lies. They take it over platitudes that are leading them closer and closer to a type of mental enslavement. So if you are one of those individuals, hey, look around you. Our numbers may be few, but I'm still convinced that we're standing in the right place. And it's an honor to be standing in your company. So let's keep moving forward. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, you've heard me talk about lifesavingfood.com. And lately, I've beaten the drum pretty good about my concern over what I think are the possibility for coming food shortages. Now, I know no thinking person would ever agree that such a thing could happen, but I want to just play a really quick audio clip for you just to to illustrate uh, that that perhaps uh, those ideas that it could never happen here may have been just a little premature. I don't know who this guy is, but here's here's what he has to say. Nothing more to report. With regard to food shortage, yes, we did re- re- talk about food shortages. And, uh, and it's going to be real. The, the price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well. Wow. What? <laughs> was was that on the teleprompter? Was, was his earpiece telling him to say that? Because... I don't know. That's pretty sobering to hear the president talk about this. And, and and I don't think he's doing this from the sense of, hey, he too just wants to warn you so that you can, you know, uh, prepare for, for what might be coming. I think I think we're being conditioned to understand that, okay, here it comes, but it's going to be done. I, I believe there's deliberate manipulation that's taking place in the supply chain, within the, the monetary system, 
and and even just the the unrest you know the 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 conflict right now between Russia and Ukraine is drastically impacting the world of agriculture but we're not going to see these results for some time but i think it's being done to bring populations under control through the mechanism of food i i don't know a nice way to say this but historically government imposed famines have proven to be a remarkable way to starve people into submission. And if you've ever got the impression that somebody wants you to submit, job or jab, you know, kind of style, yeah, there are definitely people who would do that. Now, if you had any doubts about whether this whole Great Reset thing was just another conspiracy theory, the cat's out of the bag. you got public figures out there stumping for the Great Reset. They're very open about it. They're very matter-of-fact. Of course, this is how it is going to be, Klaus Schwab says. Uh, you know, this is, this is the logical. You'll own nothing, and you'll be happy. We have determined this. Well, Victor Davis Hanson actually has a warning for the elites. He says, yes, there is a real reset coming, but it's not the one that they think is going to happen. He says, Joe Biden believes the Ukraine war will mark the start of a new world order. That's, by the way, something else that Biden was was mentioning just recently. In the middle of the global uh, COVID pandemic, Klaus Schwab and global elites likewise announced a great reset. Victor Davis Hanson says, accordingly, the nations of the world would have to surrender their sovereignty to an international body of experts. They would enlighten us on taxes, diversity and green policies. Now, when Donald Trump got elected in 2016, marquee journalists announced partisan reporting would have to displace the old, supposedly disinterested approach to the news. Victor Davis Hanson says there's a common theme here. In normal times, progressives worry they don't have public support for their policies. Only in crises do they feel that the political left and media can merge to use apocalyptic times to ram through unusually unpopular approaches to foreign and domestic problems. Now, we saw this last year, fleeing from Afghanistan, the embrace of critical race theory, trying to end the filibuster, pack the court, junk the electoral college, and nationalize voting laws. These new orders and resets always entail far bigger government and more unelected, more powerful bureaucracies. He says elites assume that their radical changes in energy use, media reporting, voting, sovereignty, and racial and ethnic quotas will never quite apply to themselves, the architects of such top-down changes. So we common folk must quit fossil fuels, but not those who need to use corporate jets. Walls will not mar our borders, but they will protect the homes of Nancy Pelosi, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates. Hunter Biden's lost laptop will be declared by fiat, not news. In, in contrast, the fake Alpha Bank collusion narrative will be national headline news for weeks. Middle-class lifestyles will be curbed as we're now instructed to strive for sustainability and transition to apartment living and mass transit. But the Obamas will still keep their three mansions and the Silicon Valley futurists will insist on exemptions for their yachts. In truth, he says, we are about to see a radical reset of the current reset. And Victor Davis Hanson says it will be a different sort of transformation than the elites are expecting and one that they should greatly fear. He says the world in the United States are furious over hyperinflation that may soon exceed 10% per year. 
we will be lucky if it ends only in recession or stagflation rather than global depression. And the mess was created by the same apparat who bought into modern monetary theory. That silly university idea claimed prosperity would follow vastly expanding the money supply, keeping interest rates at de facto zero levels, running huge annual deficits, piling up unsustainable national debt, and subsidizing workers to stay home. Natural gas and oil costs are now soaring to unsustainable levels and to the point where the middle class will simply not be able to travel to keep warm in winter or cool in summer. Both in Europe and the United States, left-wing governments deliberately curbed drilling and non-Russian pipelines. They shut down nuclear power plants and subsidized costly, inefficient solar and wind projects. They ended up not with utopia, but with fuel shortages, high prices, and energy dependency on the world's most repressive regimes. The woke revolution in the West was supposed to teach us that the white male-dominated Western world was toxic. Its origins, ascendance, and current leisure and affluence were supposedly only due to systemic exploitation, racism, and sexism. Elites introduced cancel culture, doxing, deplatforming, and social ostracism to shame those those supposed exploiters and to destroy their lives and careers. Few asked how a supposedly noxious West of some 2,500 years duration became the number one destination of millions of of global non-Western migrants and offered the greatest degree of global prosperity and freedom for its citizens. So he says a reset reckoning is coming in reaction to the new orders championed by Biden and the Davos set. In the November 2022 midterms, we're likely to see a historic no to the orthodox left-wing agenda that's resulted in unsustainable inflation, unaffordable energy, war and humiliation abroad, spiraling crime, racial hostility, and arrogant defiance from those who deliberately enacted these disastrous policies. Closed and secured borders with only legal and measured immigration will return. Americans will demand tough police enforcement and deterrent sentencing, and a return to integration and the primacy of individual character rather than separatist fixations on the color of our skin. Victor Davis Hansen says the public will continue to tune out the partisan and mediocre mainstream media. We will see greater increased production of oil and natural gas to transition us slowly to a wider variety of energy, strong national defense, and deterrent foreign policies. I think he's being optimistic, but... I do agree that it, there has to be some pushback against the uh, one-size-fits-all, top-down approach that's being forced on us right now. Victor Davis Hansen says the prophets of the New World Order sowed the wind, and they will soon reap the whirlwind of an angry public worn out by elite incompetence, arrogance, and ignorance. So here's what I'm thinking. I don't think they're going to give up. I don't think they will. Uh, they will. I think they're going to push ahead and blitzkrieg whatever they need to do to get this uh, new order, this great reset, going uh, as, as uh, quickly as they can. But it's going to take chaos first, and I think that's going to mean the systematic, deliberate destruction of many of the systems and institutions around us. I know that sounds bleak, but it's also very fitting with fourth-turning methodology. It's also a good reason why you may want to click on that link in my uh, sponsor notes for life-saving food. If there was ever a time to have yourself a a little ready supply of shelf-stable food just for a rainy day or times of upheaval, 
My friend, the times have come. Might want to act on it now. Supplies are still plentiful. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. You know, I'm a big believer in hindsight, only because I've seen it at work in my own life. And and it's, you know, it is much easier to connect the dots when you're looking back after you've been through all of uh, whatever you've been through. And, you know, this works both ways. I can see where the really bad decisions is like, oh, yeah, that led to some really unintended or undesirable consequences. At the same time, as I look back sometimes and connect the dots, I can see where something that originally felt like a real trial or a setback at the time actually was a stepping stone, a necessary stepping stone to get to a better place. It took me a long time to get to where I could roll with the punches and recognize that, uh, you know, there there's a better way to approach this. But I guess my point here is simply hindsight is a very valuable teaching tool. And it's a great reminder to learn from past mistakes. So as we sit here two years down the road from COVID and the lockdowns and, and everything that's transpired over the course of the pandemic, Kit Knightley, writing for OffGuardian.org, has some great insights on the vital lesson that uh, what we learned over the last two years about COVID could teach us about Ukraine. Let's connect some dots, shall we? This was published back on, uh, well, I guess it was published uh, yesterday. Ha, what do you know? It says, yesterday marked exactly two years since the UK went into our first lockdown. Just three weeks to flatten the curve. Several months later, the lockdown stopped. Then it started again around Christmas. There was never, ever any justification for the lockdown. Lockdowns don't work to halt the spread of a disease. Even if they did, COVID was never enough of a threat to justify one. And the destructive knock-on effects on public health and the economy make the cure worse than the disease. So we don't need to go into the details of that now. It's all well established at this point. But most importantly, it was well established before the lockdowns began. From the moment COVID was first mentioned in the press, it was obvious that it was more smoke and mirrors than anything else. And Kit Knightley deserves to take a victory lap on this. Kit says, as I wrote in January of 2020, when the press was in a frenzy over only 800 global cases and 26 deaths, quote, longer term, there is vaccination to consider. Medicine you have to take, even if you're not sick, is a goldmine for pharmaceutical companies. And if the government makes them mandatory, well, then that's even better. Now, this was January of 2020 when Kit Knightley wrote those words. The coming agenda was that obvious even then. Surveillance, censorship, vaccine mandates, big profits for big pharma. It was all there to see in January of 2020. By March 13th of 2020, it was even more blatant. And Kit Knightley at that time wrote, it turns out, In order to best deal with the coronavirus, we need to ban large public protests, introduce martial law, stop using cash, vote digitally or by post, leave our borders wide open, censor the major social media networks, and start enforcing compulsory vaccination, which is very fortunate because they wanted to do all that anyway. I know, you're thinking, wow, Kit Knightley's a bit of a prophet, huh? 
Well, the day before the UK's lockdown was put in place, a spokesman for Italy's Institute of Health admitted the way in which we code deaths in our country is very generous in the sense that all the people who die in hospitals with the coronavirus are deemed to be dying of the coronavirus. So from at least March of 2020, it was perfectly clear the data was being manipulated and that the bureaucratic machinery was being put in place to create a pandemic through nothing but the magic of cultivated statistics. Now, this was not just an important issue. It was the only important issue. They revealed their agenda and then began falsifying data to justify that agenda, and were doing it from the very beginning of the pandemic. It was the only story that mattered and still matters. Now, Kit Knightley says that the mainstream media never discussed this. Well, that's not surprising. The mainstream media are a lost cause because they live in a pretend world they think they can build with their fake headlines about non-events. They have sold themselves completely, and there will be no reaching them. So they talked about mask mandates and infection numbers and hand sanitizers and the panic buying of toilet paper, carefully examining the bark on every tree while meticulously ignoring the forest. But that's to be expected. Now, the alternative media sphere, however, is still full of people who want to tell the truth and do the right thing. And yet on COVID, there were major failures. Somehow, even alternative voices began echoing the mainstream, repeating falsehoods as if they were facts, reinforcing foundational myths of the pandemic narrative. As Kat wrote in April 2020, many high-profile independent outlets were caught up in the hysteria, either rallying behind the police state, happily cheering on authoritarianism because it was in the public interest, or diverted into talking about side issues that never came close to examining the true heart of the matter. Now, whether these failures were born of poor research or fear, ego or ideology in the end doesn't really matter. The bigger the lie, the more people will believe it. We're all subject to that weakness of the human condition. Ivermectin and lab leaks and natural immunity and variants and dozens of other deck chairs that so many people spent two years assiduously rearranging was not the issue. The agenda was the issue. The lie used to sell that agenda was the issue. See, in the end, the government didn't care whether you thought masks worked or exactly how long you self-isolated. They didn't care if you thought they were incompetent or heavy-handed or supported them wholeheartedly. All they cared about was that you believed the pandemic was a genuine threat and that something had to be done to combat it. All they wanted was your participation in that one lie. And any story that helped promote this one lie was acceptable. Anything short of questioning the most basic assumption underpinning the narrative can be tantamount to supporting it, maybe accidentally, maybe with good intentions, but supporting it nonetheless. Now, this is true of COVID, and it's just as true of every headline, every other piece of breaking news, including the war in Ukraine. And it doesn't just apply to Western establishment narratives either. All official stories need to be equally interrogated. So, yes, Russia has been on the right side of history before now. In Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Crimea. Yes, Putin's government rescued the Russian state from the brink of collapse in the early 2000s and likely saved millions of lives as a result. Yes, the U.S. empire, through NATO, 
has been ruthlessly expansionist and underpinned by a brazenly hypocritical monopoly on legitimate violence. And yes, there are Nazis in Ukraine. All of that can be true without changing the fact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine may be illegal or that it doesn't appear to make tactical sense. Or that Western sanctions on Russia may have a more detrimental impact on their own economies than on Russia's. Or that Russia and China are pursuing the same globalist agenda being promoted in the West. Now, Russia and China have thrown their complete support behind the COVID narrative and the globalist agenda it served. You can't wave that away with, well, they didn't mean it or it's okay when they do it. This isn't about, and it shouldn't be about, taking sides. And doing so is detrimental. We've seen how bipartisan conflicts can serve to bolster the most harmful aspects of a narrative. Ivermectin versus vaccines, Sweden versus China, lab leak versus zoonosis. These are surface-level disagreements whose existence only reinforces the underlying establishment narrative. Just as hard binaries were tolerated, even encouraged, during the pandemic, the same pattern emerges in Ukraine. No-fly zone versus sanctions, Nazis versus no-Nazis, Zelensky versus Putin, East versus West. Kit Knightley says these are belligerents supposedly opposing one another, yet built on the same foundational preposition. The geopolitical conflict is entirely as simplistic and total as presented. Just pick your hero and villain, and all the economic hardship, censorship, groupthink, and loss of personal freedom that results from this conflict is an unhappy product of the war, not an aim. But there are plenty of good reasons to question that assumption, and plenty of evidence supporting other, more complex interpretations. Even Tucker Carlson, of all people, has pointed out the convenience of switching from COVID to Ukraine without missing a beat. A different problem and a different reaction, but requiring an almost identical solution. The agenda was obvious in January 2020, and it wasn't about COVID. The same agenda is just as obvious today. Is it likely this time that this is really all about Ukraine? It's a simple truism of war that you can never win if you are fighting entirely on your enemy's terms. If you let the opposition choose when, where, and how to fight, pick the ground and the rules of the engagement, you will lose every time. Well, the same is true of debate and argument, information warfare, if you like. If you let your your opponent set the a priori assumptions, they will win. They will pick the unquestioned truth at the heart of the matter and force you to argue with the bounds within the bounds of a reality they've created to suit their own ends. The moment you let any government-backed mainstream ideas become sacrosanct, unassailable truth, you have lost the argument. You're letting other people choose the rules of the game. You don't need to choose who to believe. We don't need to believe anyone. COVID should have taught us that, if nothing else. I think this is really sound advice. I got a link to this article in the show notes. Check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I just want to send some love out there in the direction of sewingandquiltingcenter.com. If you're fortunate enough to be hearing my program in southern Utah, hey, they're right there in your neighborhood, 779 South Bluff Street. Definitely, uh, this is a place where if you are interested in the sewing or the creative arts, um, long-arm quilting, embroidery, anything like that, 
Sewing and Quilting Center has it all for you. The supplies, the machines. How about this? Not only will they uh, sell you the machine, but they will also service your machine. Let's say you bought a machine that you didn't buy from them, but you, but it needs service. They are certified technicians. They can take care of that for you. And I thought this was really cool. They can also teach you how to use your sewing machine, your long-arm quilting machine, etc. What a great tool to have at your disposal. And, and better still, the people who are willing to teach you how to use it the way it should be used. I've got a link for them in my show notes. Look under the uh, sponsors links. Click on sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Tell them thanks for sponsoring this program. I need a little bit of humor. How about you? Could, could you use a bit of a, of a laugh? I think the secret to surviving and thriving in clown world is in maintaining a sense of humor. Because there's a lot of dark stuff that's going on around us. I mean, look, I don't want to wallow in it. I don't want to sit there and just immerse myself in it like, oh, well, we're stuck. This is quicksand. We'll never get out. I think it's good to be aware of it, but we have to laugh at some point. And El Gato Malo has a brilliant, funny, insightful take on the controversy over what is a woman. Thanks to the Supreme Court hearings, confirmation hearings that were going on in which, uh, I'm sorry, her I, I'm going to mispronounce her name. So, uh, uh, Ms. Brown, she is, uh, she is definitely uh, playing it safe when someone asks, can you define a woman? Well, I'm not a biologist. And it's funny, I've actually started to see some pretty funny memes that have cropped up. A guy walking directly into the women's restroom and some woman screaming at him, get out of here, what are you doing in here? And he's like, gee, lighten up, I'm not a biologist. so what is a woman and other quandaries musings and memes on restoring sense to civilization El Gato Malo says much has been made of the question and answer from Kentaji Brown Jackson's Senate confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court nomination can you provide a definition for the word woman after short back and forth Jackson ultimately said no I can't you can't Blackburn asked not in this context I'm not a biologist Jackson said Obviously, this is not a terribly satisfying answer from an aspirant to America's highest court, especially as this issue is one of great current moment. But on the other hand, it's a real stinker of a question, and one that, given the current gender minefield in which we all seem to reside, I doubt any of us could answer satisfactorily upon a stage this large before an audience this varied in everything save their rapt hostility without setting off some sort of explosion somewhere. So I'd like to put forth the uh, the notion that it is that fact and not her answer that should be drawing concern. We've literally created a societal climate where intelligent elected or intelligent educated people rather cannot answer a question that's been obvious to two-year-olds since before humans climbed down out of trees and started experimenting with walking upright. Seriously, how is anyone okay with this? We've allowed society to devolve not only into an endless pratfall of ideological poo-flinging and recrimination, but to one debating outright hallucinatory precepts within dogmatically defined domains. We've deconstructed and pixelated everything to the point where words and concepts have become bereft of semantic meaning and, regist- and rendered our societal discourse into gibberish that every side is taking deadly seriously and warring over in some sort of cultural self-immolation. No one has any idea what they're supposed to do or how to navigate this. It's an endless recursive game of gotcha ball 
with rules that change all the time without notice or reason. In fact, uh, the writer says, I'm honestly a little shocked that KBJ is not in trouble with gender activists for admitting that the issue is biological. No one can live like this. It's simply not possible. We've eroded every vestige of sense and bastion of decency from discourse and interaction. It's rendering everything stupid, unintelligible, and unnavigable. Seen through this funhouse mirror lens, the very notion of culture has become an absurdity. And this issue is just one of dozens, probably hundreds. It just happens to have a lot of good memes right now. And by the way, there are a ton of great memes in this particular um, Substack posting. This ontological babble virus has infested gender, race, sexuality, politics, property, rights, and every other aspect of culture. And we need to address this. We've let increasingly radicalized and crazy people peddle hallucinations until they've woven themselves into the firmaments and foundations of civilizations. And this abnegates the entire idea of being civilized. Now, if you really need someone to spell out these issues for you, dictate them from on high, rarify them into the more outlandish Baroque stylizations of purported power relationships, why, you're not a civilized person. It's honestly questionable if you can be called sane. You're certainly not self-governing or autonomous. And this is a big game of let's you and him fight, foisted by people of agenda and incomprehension. Some are demagogues, some sincere denizens of the fabulous uh, realms they've erected for themselves, but neither are folks you want at the vanguard of the zeitgeist. That way, madless li- madless, <laughs> madness lies. So if we're to have anything resembling a true public agora, then it's time we abandon any and all respect for this individual effacing, effacing pathos of prickly, wokest agreement, aggrievement. Rather. It derives its power from the fear of standing up to it and the horror of the words that perpetually and the pathologically offended will hurl at any who dispute them. This has become both a tactic and an identity agglomerated, agglomerated rather into one vibrating ball of cancel culture edgelord war. So how do you address something like that? I think you're going to like this. My simple answer is, so what? Seriously, who cares? Go engage in your silly semantic squabbles somewhere else. Your 15 minutes are up, and the adults would like civilization back now. Now, cancel culture is not even a real monster. It's a scary shadow cast upon a wall by pernicious puppeteers. They own the agora because they've convinced the masses that they do so. They might secure their and satiate their own needs and narcissisms, but they have no real claim. And they will vanish like mist once you learn to laugh at them. It's time. Just stop accepting any of this. Let discourse become ungoverned and ungovernable. Lose fear of giving offense and instead learn to live in a world where people disagree and make mistakes absent malice. Bring laughter back to misunderstandings and misapprehensions. Reasoned and reasonable people of goodwill can find humor in their similarities and gasp their their differences and their dialogues and their failures of comprehension. We used to live in a world like that. And it's time that world was restored. The revolution is uh, going to be, it's not just going to be fun, but it's also going to be funny. That's pretty good. I saw a picture yesterday that I think illustrates this too. Um, Someone had taken their kids to the, I think it was the Boston Museum of Natural Science. 
First time they'd had him out for a nice field trip in a while and looked very interesting. And here was this very interesting display of two skeletons side by side. These are legit human skeletons. And it was so interesting because it shows, well, there's some differences between these two. This one has more of a square jaw, narrow pelvis, and the ribs are, are you know, arranged slightly different. The other one was not only shorter in stature, but had a wider pelvis, a rounded jaw, and uh, I, I can't remember what it was. There was a difference there with the rib cage as well. And here's the part that's going to shock you. Do you know what these skeletons were labeled? Male and female. I know. It's, how long do you suppose a display like that is going to, to be allowed to remain? I mean, that's a public museum. Kids are going to see that. They're going to start questioning, you know, whether or not, you know, <laughs> whether or not all the bull crap they're being fed is, is just that. It's fertilizer. It's nothing more. My only response on seeing that picture was, well, this could be a problem. Somebody get us a biologist. Stat! <laughs> I know it can be discouraging when you see the... Uh, well, I'll just call it the insanity that uh, is is holding sway over uh, a pretty sizable chunk of society. And the people who aren't under its thrall right now, uh, there's a lot of them that are just intimidated. They, they, they don't want to appear insensitive. They, they will, uh, yes, the emperor's new clothes are, are beautiful. Why, they're the finest I've ever seen. But they're just saying that because they don't want somebody, you know, calling them out as insensitive. If there was ever a time to grow thicker skin... Let me put that another way. If there was ever a time to just not care what other people may be saying about you, but to be at peace with your conscience and comfortable living in reality, this is that time. And this show exists to convince you that you are not alone in that thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show.